I never write questions for anything. But for you, <laughs> I decided I had to write some should questions. Be flattered or worried? You should definitely be flattered. But it's like there, it, it is a it is a big bite of ice cream. That thing. Yeah, it's a lot to go through. So let's start in the middle because I think that's actually where people have their little heart attack. The movie does. The movie goes is going along relentlessly for about the first hour and a half, and then you drop off the cliff mm. hard. Was that a your initial design? Was that your thought? Was it just where the writing went? Yeah, and, and, um, I think the the metaphor that I had in my mind was uh, a little bit less uh, falling off a cliff. Uh, but, but, <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll go with that. Uh, and uh, that kind of rude awakening when the sort of I mean we almost had it here for a second, but kind of the lights flashing on. Uh, you know, uh, uh, right at the end of a party, or right at, or, or, or if you're sort of, you know, it's like the the plug has been pulled on the music, fluorescent lights suddenly come on. You look around, you realize this kind of area, this this sort of ecstatic fever dream you were in that felt so kind of, uh, you know, glorious and and intoxicating. You know, it's suddenly you realize you're in kind of a a dingy basement room with fluorescent lights and and terrible alcohol and everyone's had a little bit too much and and you need to go home so it, it, it was kind of the i guess um to, to put a finer point on it um the whole idea of like the life cycle of a party was kind of very sort of um at the outset uh, for me with this movie it was a lot of like movie wise i'd say the closest comp for me was something like la dolce vita um, where i think you know you, you get that kind of sense through a, a, a series of basically parties or kind of variations on the idea of a party in that movie of the, the, the promise of the kind of uh, the, 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 that sort of beginning of the night, you know, when, when the night is young, uh, the promise of it, the ebullience of it. And then it starts to curdle or it starts to kind of take, you know, a different shape. And then where it really to me gets interesting um, is, is, is then when, you know, let's say the cold light of day seeps, starts seeping in and suddenly you start to look around and you see, the same exact area you were in for the previous several hours, um, suddenly everything looks, uh, you know, paler and, and uh, like a like a ghost of itself. And so that the idea that maybe a whole society could go through that cycle, that was sort of my my thesis of, of Hollywood in this era was that okay. it basically went through a version of that. But instead of over one night at six years, um, that became kind of, I'd say, the sort of structuring principle in my mind for the movie, which does mean you do have a moment where, yeah, the party ends and we can debate where exactly in the movie that is, but that's the, that's what we're talking about. Well, you kill Freddy, <laughs> the guy in the booth, kill little Freddy. Freddy, Freddy is the kid from, from uh, Kate and Alley who dies in the uh, booth doing the silent film. Yeah. But, <laughs> so you kill Freddy and then you go to the, you go to the next party, which his is, name is, his name is Bill. I think His name in the movie is Bill. Yeah. His real life name is Freddy. You see, you, you, I've known him since he was like you, you twelve. Know the actor? Yes, I did. About the actor? Yeah. Wow. You killed poor Freddie. Yeah. But, <laughs> That's, but he was happy to have a good role, so I just that was called good. It Fred. <laughs> he prefers Freddie. He, but I well, I knew him when he was eight. So okay. back in New York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry that I killed him, but but then you and then you go to the next party, and the second party in the movie mm. is a very different party, and by the end of the second party. It's like both of those two characters, Nellie and uh, Jack, have been completely disillusioned about any chance of the future being very good. Yeah, exactly. To, yeah, to me, that was kind of the, the, 
the 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 what I'm referring to when I say that the moment where things kind of curdle, you know, where there, there's still it was sort of interesting to me too, of kind of looking at the history of sort of how sound came in. It wasn't exactly as, as nothing in history is, you know, there wasn't an exact before and after. Um, and so there was this really interesting in between time where, you know, uh, some silent movies are still being made. Some, some sound movies are being made. Half the industry thinks sound is the future. Half the industry still thinks it's a fad. Um, and you know, you kind of, you, you, you have this sort of moment in time where all the rapturous energy that you find at the end of the silent era is still going on, but now it's going on with these voices that you're hearing in your ear. You know, it's going on wh- where um, in, in, in a kind of situation where half the people dancing know that they're dancing on, on, you know, on sand, you know, that that's sort of the, the fragility of all of it has been kind of revealed. And so to me, that was a little bit, you know, trying to capture that with the, with that pool party morphing into the snake fight where it's in my mind, all the people that show up that night are, are kind of showing up with the intent of partying like nothing has changed, but actually everything has changed and the writing's on the wall. And maybe some of them are realizing that more readily than others are. Well, I think watching it tonight or watching the last second half of it, the, um, the change of everything going from being wide open to being closed, mm. both the boxes in which the cameras are being done and the sound is being done, but even the clothes that everybody's wearing change almost completely in the second half. Yeah, yeah, and the hair, and the, yeah, everything becomes, um, what I thought was a little interesting too was kind of to almost do a little bit of a sort of period movie in reverse where it's like the thinking was a little bit that it becomes more, everything you see and, and sort of, feel becomes a little more periodified as the movie goes on it's it's uh, one of the sort of things that kind of struck me most sort of vividly when i first started really getting into i'd say the sort of like the visual evidence of the period of you know just kind of photographs and and uh trying to get beyond just glamour shots but looking at sort of you know the closest you can get to candid photography of the time and mug shots and things like that that's where you can really start to get a sense of what people really looked like and whatnot the the level to which the period of let's say the twenties or this moment in the twenties did not conform to the kind of bobbed haircuts, pencil eyebrows, sort of, you know, everyone flapper dresses kind of um, image that I had in my head that I think a lot of people have in their head um, was, was both sort of shocking to me also um, exciting, you know, cause it gives you something to, to play with that can, you know, hopefully sort of break free of those expectations. But um it also suggested to me another way of sort of structuring the piece that you can kind of begin with this sort of land of misfits where they're all kind of confounding people's expectations of the time as well as our own, you know? And so you sort of lean into anything that kind of, I wanted to try to sort of intentionally lean into anything that I was finding in the research, but that felt like it would feel anachronistic. That makes sense. You know, you lean into all of that and then you sort of watch these people almost like straight jackets have to kind of slowly bit by bit conform to period and so margot's hair goes from this sort of you know wild long hair that certainly doesn't look like we expect 20s haircuts to look um goes into uh, you know by the second half she's uh, she's got the, the close crop hair uh, she's got a version of the bob right that you know and so uh, little things like that both in terms of yeah how, how diego dresses how some of the characters kind of act um and then i'd say also just the sort of the the, the feeling of the parties that to me it's like the the one party in this movie that I kind of wanted to feel sort of like a, a where we, we wanted to embrace every single 
thing that we have seen, every single trope we've seen before in a mm -hmm. kind of 20 soiree and the elegance of that and the sort of, it was the sort of, you know, Hearst kind of bungalow kind of um, party where, if you can call it a party, where, where she winds up, uh, where she winds, where she tries to play the part and can't. But that, you know, that sort of thing, that that would be where, where everything would sort of uh, intentionally lean into the cliche of kind of what we have in our head uh, uh, of that period. So let me ask about the three Margos. <laughs> Are there three Margos? It's a, the, the, the woman who uh, gives the golden showers to the, to the fat guy and the, uh, and the actress that she's working with in her, that she over, who owns the movie, who's the producer of the movie and is very cranky, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, who's oh, a real yeah. person actually, in real name. All three of them look very much like Margot. Yes. Uh, is that completely intentional? Or? They're all Australian. They're all friends. It's Phoebe Tonkin, Samara Weaving, and and Margot. Um, it, it, that wasn't the intent necessarily to to, to uh, you know. Um, certainly, I think uh, Phoebe, the, the the girl who pees in, the, in, in that scene, and Margot, them having some physical resemblance uh, made sense just for the plot point. Um, and then you know, with Samara, yeah, she was based on. So it's Constance Moore. Right. You're probably thinking of Colleen Moore. Is is the is the real person but it was a little bit she's a little bit of a mix of the thing is colleen moore actually was a little bit of a of a uh, kind of a free spirit herself so it's a little more a little less colleen moore a little more um like esther ralston or someone like that so it's sort of the the it, it was it was kind of taking the the taking this person as like a foil for Margot or for nelly and having them sort of battle it out i just kind of appreciated that you know we sort of looked at a lot of auditions and then sam Weaving was willing to kind of do it and, and uh, i kind of appreciated that uh they would have a little bit of a doppelganger. Uh, Somebody insisted yesterday to me that exactly. they were that, that Margo Margo played both all of them, not all three, but at least the, the two of them. Oh, she is Colleen. We should just lie and say that. It's, uh, <laughs> little, it's a good story. Um, no, no, uh, no. But they are all Australian, so maybe there's something in the accents. I don't know. Well, I was going for uh, the idea of the universal idea of what Margot is, as opposed to a literal I individual. I see. Yeah. That am I reaching? <laughs> No, because it sounds uh, sounds good. It sounds good. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah no. Um, no. But but um, but that whole little gag of the you know sort of um, the you know uh, the actress trying to sort of you know uh, getting worried that her co-star is stealing the scene and sort of fighting over close-ups and 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 then um, Nellie kind of getting her way by sort of scheduling this, this sort of impromptu uh, uh, plastic surgery to, uh, to fuck up their whole schedule. That was a whole, um, you know, that, that, that like a lot of the stuff in Margot's character was pulled entirely from Clara Bow and like the uh, sort of, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I'd say her whole character is a combo of, there's other actors in there too, but the Clara Bow stuff like that, um, the USC football team, that whole sort of relationships, another Clara Bow story. These are all these sort of stories about Clara Bow, who was, uh, you know, one of, one of the sort of original, you know, sort of sex symbols of, of Hollywood um, at that era. Um, but like a lot, I think part of what I loved about this era, like a lot of the Clara Bow stories, it's very hard to separate fact from from urban legend, you know, and, and you'll find you'll find some people who kind of will will uh, stake a claim on one side or the other, but there's this whole oral history thing to, to, to these people and to a lot of Hollywood in that era as well, before everything was so readily documented before, um, uh, you know, back when you had to kind of take people's word for it a lot. And so the, you know, the, 
you get the same thing with theories about the character that Brad Pitt is sort of loosely based on John Gilbert. All the theories about why did John Gilbert not survive into the silent era? There's lots of theories of like, you know, well, his voice wasn't good. No, actually, his voice was great. It was just luck of the draw. Or actually, his voice was great, but Louis B. Mayer thought he was being paid too much, so they sabotaged the uh, microphones uh, so that his voice would sound higher pitched. You know, it's it, all these sort of things where um, I, I guess I love that, where, where it's like, it, it makes it kind of impossible to do something that's more kind of truly historical, I guess, but in a sort of delicious way. It allows this room for, uh, for uh, again, urban legend, myth, kind of rumor, uh, th- stories that kind of take on a life, uh, life of their own as they, as they kind of evolve. It sort of winds up being kind of what we think of as tabloid, you know, tabloid writing versus proper journalism. You know, it's a little bit what I love about Kenneth Anger's book, Hollywood mm-hmm. Babylon, which is, you know, a lot of historians, of course, are very upset with that book because a lot of it is probably bullshit. But I would argue that it it captures a spirit of the time that is very truthful to to Hollywood and to the origins of Hollywood. And so that spirit, I think, was kind of this sort of, yeah, compass for me in general when it came to sort of balancing things like literal research-based fact and and sort of more conjecture. Is Jack really smart, or is Jack kind of performing being smart, do you think? You mean sort of like seeing ahead? or He has all these speeches where he, you know, has these opinions well, about that, cinema. And yeah, I, I, I think, uh, no, I think he's deeply insecure, like, like all actors or all artists, you know. Um, I think he's, uh, um, I think there's something about the insecurity of that first generation of movie makers that I found very touching because... You know, it can be easy to forget today how looked down upon movies were at that time. And um, and, you know, uh, the. That that idea that it was. um, That movie acting was something other than real acting and that, you know, that 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 that. um, uh, You could be, say, someone like Jack Conrad, you could be. uh, or the people he's based on, again, John Gilbert, Fairbanks, let's say, Valentino, you know, you could be someone who is just uh, the most famous person in the world, it just seems kind of at the top echelon of their industry. And yet still, I, I feel to me, he's someone who still is utterly intimidated by, you know, uh, by any sort of supporting player from a Broadway show or something. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, hello. Oh. Um. Um, you know, there's this deep crippling insecurity that, uh, you know, that, that I think is, um, yeah, of not being enough, of not, of, of not being a real artist. So to me, he compensates for that with a lot of, uh, you know, um, a lot of talk of what he thinks of as real artists. Everything has to relate to, you know, something he's read about Michelangelo or, 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 you know, or, or, um, uh, you know, something he's heard about, you know, you know, atonal music in Europe or Bauhaus architecture. So, you know, it's just everything has to relate to something like that, that he can classify as proper art uh, as a way for company. Again, that's, that was my, I'm not sure if Brad thought of it the same way, but that was my logic behind, behind all of those things. I think it's less about whether he's smart or not. And I think he is smart, but it's, it's to me, all those speeches are just totally engendered by fear and insecurity. Well, when he, when the speech by Gene Smart's character, whose name I don't remember at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Eleanor. Eleanor is, it's, 
one of the great speeches, certainly of this year, many others, I think people will remember that for a long time. But he just, it stops him. Yeah. All of his bravado, yeah. <laughs> even going into the room, is yeah, and, yeah. And the movie stardom is gone. <laughs> yeah. And he quietly, you know, thanks her on the way out. Yeah. Um, it, 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 uh, yeah. I, I, I'd say that was sort of the, the intent of it in terms of like, uh, certainly the idea that he's, you know, of how he enters, that he bulldozes in expecting he's going to do his movie star thing, which has always worked, you know, that mm -hmm. he's going to be the one who speaks, everyone else is going to listen, he's going to be the one who dominates, everyone else will be subservient, he's the alpha, they're the beta, they're beta. Um, and and uh, obviously he's in for something uh, for something very different. I think with Eleanor also, the fun for me with that character was a little bit, you know, working backwards from that scene was, uh, can you sort of pick the person you would least expect to be the smartest person in the room? Going back to this idea of who's smart and who's not, you know, pick someone who um, seems like a buffoon, seems like a sort of caricature of herself at the outset. Um, and, uh, you know, but you kind of realize if you haven't already, certainly with that scene, you hopefully realize that actually she's got everyone's number, uh, always has. Um, and in some way, even though she's, you know, old in terms of her years, in some way, she's going to outlast them all. So she kind of self-selects as a cockroach, ultimately. I mean, she chooses that life. She doesn't, yeah. she doesn't aspire to being more. I know. Yeah. Someone gave me a, uh, yeah, someone asked me about the cockroach, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know to what extent she, uh, I, I think he, he tries to pull out the meanest insult he can think of, uh, to sort of, uh, put her down and um and she you know shows him what uh you know she's a writer so she does what a writer right. would do she she uh she takes that and turns it into uh, turns it essentially into a kind of perverse kind of compliment i don't know if that means that she actually identifies as a cockroach i haven't quite thought <laughs> thought thought through this um um, it's probably something to do also a little bit with uh, that, you know, uh, humility versus hubris, you know, and there's a little bit of the Icarus kind of thing of, you know, you, uh, you had the spotlight, you needed the spotlight, you needed to fly close to the sun. So you shouldn't come to me crying if, you know, uh, if you got burned by it, that's, that's, that was your choice. Um, I'm happy over here in the shadow in my corner. Um, and you can call that whatever you want. You can call that a cockroach. You can call that uh, irrelevant. You can call it whatever. But um, the point is, you're the one who's, you know, you're the one who's burning up, and I'm doing fine. Well, all the people who are the major secondary characters in the movie are the ones who survive it, not the ones who are the two of them that are flying as close to the sun, for different reasons. Each of them have different, but each of them yeah. seems more grounded than either Jack or. Well, that's one thing I think is interesting about Hollywood is that there is a way in which Hollywood as a, as a, as a, as a machine is kind of this great equalizer that for all the negative you can say about it, and especially how it treats people unequally, there's a way in which, um, and you've sort of seen this throughout history, there, there is, a, you know, a way in which uh, it's almost that like Barry Lyndon line where, you know, rich or poor, ugly or beautiful, they're all equal now. It's like once you've been truly demolished by the Hollywood machine, 
you are all equal, you know, and, and, uh, and that's, I think, the rude awakening that, you know, someone like Jack, who is so used to, so identified as, for all his insecurity, it's, he's even more reliant on the idea that ultimately, you know, he is at the top and he is, you know, uh, he has the, hassle, the, 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 the castle on the hill and, and can look down on everyone. You know, I don't think he would admit those things publicly, but I do think that's, you know, you, you get used to living like that long enough and it becomes part of your self-definition. Um, but Hollywood is a way of leveling those hills. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a way in which, um, there's a way in which the, the, uh, the, the mercilessness of that, the, the, the way in which, um, the machine of Hollywood can kind of come like a bulldozer and not discriminate between someone's status on the, on the totem pole and just sort of mercilessly mow them down. Um, it's part of the tragedy of the movie, but again, I mean, it's also, I don't know, there's something, uh, there's, there's, there's maybe something poetic about it, I guess, for me, and <laughs> in that you wind up with, I mean, I, I sort of, this is a little highfalutin maybe, but I, 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 I sort of had this picture in my head that when Manny, when Diego comes to, you know, goes back to Los Angeles at the very end of the movie, you know, it's a very different Los Angeles, right? But he's, he's a little bit experiencing what any of us or certainly me as kind of film buff film historian types experience walking through LA, you sort of, you feel the ghosts a little bit. And so there's, there's, there's a way in which, um, there's a way in which you, you, uh, you can kind of, uh, uh, you sense the, the, it, 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 in a town that's so built on success and the gleaming monuments of its own accomplishments, um, it's always just one stone's throw away from the sense of all the losses, all this, the, the, the despair, all the failed careers, all the uh, uh, unachieved dreams, all the whatever you're going to group into the negative of that. There's just it's a morass of it. And um, again, you can either pity that or celebrate it, but, but you sort of can't deny it. Well, I thought the, the production part in the, in the first act where it, there's all of this mania going on constantly mm. in all these places, but ultimately it comes down to getting that one shot mm-hmm. and that's all that matters. And that's all that will, and ultimately in Eleanor's speech as well, it's all that's going to last. Mm-hmm. And even in the closing uh, montage, you know, that's what we're left with. That's, that's all anybody actually remembers. Right. Which again is its own kind of weird equalizer because, you know, it's like uh you know, Jack Conrad, for instance, is let's say that frame that they're shooting as the butterfly comes in and the sun sets, you know, let's say that's a frame that winds up by chance, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, surviving through the years. Um, the, the uh, you know, there's a whole generation that would, you know, as as is the case with any kind of silent film that's pulled out the vaults now that will sort of put it up and unless you're Chaplin or whatnot, you know, will not be able to tell you who, who in that frame was the star, who was on top, who was you know, uh, who is rising up, who is on their way down. Um, there's, uh, you're just left with, uh, yeah, with kind of, what is it? I mean, it's, 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 it's the imprint of chemicals on celluloid. I mean, it's just sort of, uh, patterns of light on a, on a, uh, on a sort of material that, and it's sort of nothing but that. And that's, that's, that's kind of beautiful because there's, there's, um, you know, it's, it's a different way of looking at something that I learned just through sort of making different sizes of movies was how actually the fundamentals don't change at all mm. that, you know, you, 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 and, and the sun, of course, is a great reminder of that it doesn't matter. Like 
you know, if you've got stars in the movie or not, how how big a crew you have or not, like, uh, if that's, if the sun sets and you're shooting outside, you're not going to be able to shoot anymore. Like it doesn't really, there's certain things that if your shot is dependent on the sun, there's certain things that are just going to be, again, equalizers depending on whether, you know, regardless of whether you're talking a tiny little micro indie movie or something bigger. And, um, and so the, the fundamentals of kind of getting a camera, having an actor in front of it, you know, trying to tell a story that way, trying to uh, work against the limitations because there's always limitations. It's always not enough time or it's not enough this or it's not enough that. And, you know, where those limitations exist can change, but there's always some kind of box you're trying to work within. Um, it's the same as since I was making kind of home movies as a, as a kid pretending to be, you know, a filmmaker. It's sort of like I'm still pretending you know, in a way. It's like that that fundamental charade of play acting and rolling a camera and trying to tell a story is... is uh, hasn't changed and 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 it's kind of amazing to think that it kind of hasn't changed in a hundred years or you know more than a hundred years that sort of you're telling the story of something like that at a kind of time where in many ways you'd think you'd have so little in common with those people it's such a chasm of time certainly la has changed so much hollywood has changed so much but but the fundamentals uh really haven't this is a conversation I have a lot these days because of streaming and everything. And that, you know, oh, right. Yeah. People don't. Well, that's what they, people love to pretend everything is new. You know, yeah. to me, it's like uh, streaming. Uh, it's. Uh, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, there's, there's nothing fundamentally, you know, where. Uh, in terms of that idea of, of you know, uh, cinema or whatever you call it, or theaters having to sort of. Uh, chart a path uh that's separate but adjacent to other modes of watching things i mean it's um i mean the movie ends in 1952 that that's it was exactly the thing in the air in 1952 why they make sing in the rain why they sort of make a nostalgic look back at a crucial turning point in hollywood because they felt they were going through the same thing with tv so um so what they went through with tv and then vhs and then the dvd and then pay cable and now streaming to me it's all just one story it's not a new thing um but uh, uh, but that's the that's the um, I don't know how did we get on that subject again? I was just remember exactly. That, well, yeah, that, that that everything new is is old. That 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 sort of that that you know every that, generation wants to to be theirs. Yes, like and, somehow and, uh, it's different. But but that again, there's maybe something comforting, I guess, in the. Um, in in sort of once you sort of try to locate, you sort of strip away the. Um, the, the surface stuff and and again just go back to people shooting something on a hilltop trying to get a shot before sunset that there's yeah certain fundamentals um have remained the same that makes me think they will remain the same the exteriors the surface it'll all keep changing we, we will there will be a new version of the streaming you know uh dialogue with something else and and um uh you know and 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 just as happened in the 20s movies will have to adapt um which does mean in some ways certain kinds of movies do die. It's not, it's, it's not that everything just stays. We don't make silent movies anymore, you know, or at least the, right. the way we used to. So things do change. That you, you don't want to deny that. You don't want to sort of be um, like an ostrich with a head in the, head in the sand and, and deny that. But, yeah, that the fundamentals, that a certain kind of fundamental remains the same. I guess that was something that I've always kind of felt some version of in my, in my gut, but feel even more having sort of, yeah, kind of uh, made this movie and sort of uh, – sort of lived in this period a little bit. Uh, How many anyway. times on, on this movie did you have that feeling at the end of the day, trying to catch the light or, or having that moment that you had to get and finally getting it and wanting to kiss somebody in the mouth? 
<laughs> yeah, a lot. Well, certainly that that um, that whole sequence was definitely one of the more meta experiences I've had on a film set. You know, um, and Spike was such a brilliant choice. Well, yeah, you had to have a director playing the playing the director, and now Spike says this. He wants this to be his new persona on set. <laughs> he's like, I, I've he's like, I've, I'm so you know. I mean, you've met Spike. You know, it's very sweet, nice. Um, quiet so i would say soft-spoken kind of individual and and i think part of the reason he liked playing this was he's like god this is the director i've always wanted to be inside (laughs) just you know uh so um but i think again yeah the meta of it was um you know down to even uh stuff that maybe i wouldn't initially couldn't have controlled or wouldn't initially have planned but just happened as a sort of happy accident for instance diego calvo who plays manny um you know that whole scene where he's on the battlefield with uh, with Brad and everything. That was his first scene scene of shooting, so that means it was his first. You can see he had never worked in America. He had never been on a big film set. His first time on a uh, sort of Hollywood film set. First time acting or you know working with someone like Brad and 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 so you know he can just tap into right. I'm the wide eyed sort of uh, 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 kid essentially stumbling on here and kind of uh, in this larger than life uh, environment. He, 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 I think he was able to sort of, you know, uh, sort of connect life and art in the same way that me trying to grab the shot of them trying to grab the shot while the sun is set. And, you know, that, that me and my, my DP and everyone were, were, were able to do. So it all kind of fed, fed each other. And then the scene where they try to shoot sound, you know, that's its own thing where you can just, it's so easy and cathartic to just draw from everyone could draw from what's your worst day on set you've ever had, you know, <laughs> what is that day where nothing went right, you know, and uh, everyone has a version of that. So, you know, uh, yeah. So Manny opens the movie, Manny closes the movie. Is Manny the main character of this movie? Or is it really just an ensemble where that happens to be the structure? Uh, well, I, th- I think, uh, no, I think Hollywood, the machine of Hollywood, the, uh, the, the sort of the, the organism of this society is the, is the main character. I mean, I, I know that, that this sort of sounds uh, maybe uh, like a cop-out, but, but, but I guess it's, um, I think before I even knew so much who the individuals were in the movie, I knew um, in terms of sort of what I wanted to do at the outset, I knew it wanted to be, or I wanted it to be an ensemble that, um, that would try to kind of use the form of an ensemble where you can kind of hopscotch a little bit, get different, different perspectives um, uh, as a way of telling a story of a society, you know, to telling a story. Of, I guess that's why I kept leaning back on, you know, what, what are like party scenes or, or scenes where they give you an excuse to assemble a kind of larger cast of characters. And then you can kind of, uh, you can by sort of zeroing in on, you know, uh, uh, you know, zeroing in on one and then another and then another, hopefully you get an idea of the sort of organism that this, that, that this kind of living, breathing organism that is the crowd, that is the industry, that is the city, that is all these things that are kind of the art form, that, all these things that sort of feed each other, um, that, you know, ultimately that's the, you know, it's like a, it's, it's a, yeah, Hollywood is the main character and it's a coming of age story of Hollywood's a loss of innocence story. It's a, you know, rude awakening into adulthood story of, of, of Hollywood. So I'd say everyone in it is sort of in the service of that, I guess. So as we get towards the end, we should talk about the end, the montage. Where, how, where did that come from? Where did that, where did you dream that up? Where did it just fall out of your head? Uh, that that was that was one of the sort of last pieces of the puzzle. It came um, 
sort of towards the tail end, you know, of post, we were, we had a simpler version of the last scene that was just basically Manny um, sitting and watching Singing in the Rain. And, um, and it just wasn't, you know, it didn't, uh, I think for a while I thought it was sufficient, but I think as I sort of got, as the rest of the movie kind of took shape, it became more and more clear that it just was not um, holding its weight. I, I think part of the problem was that it was, for lack of a better word, too normal. You know, it was, it was, it, there was a, there was a, like a literalness to it um, that, that where the movie needed to, that felt sort of like a different movie. It's sort of that the, the movie needed to kind of get a little unruly again. Um, and, and I also, I mean, I like the idea of, um, you know, it's like, I think actually any of my, or sort of a lot of my movies, you know, just sort of the, that you're going to kind of, if you're going to sort of dwindle down the energy or sort of get everything down to a sort of more quiet, melancholy kind of state to, if you can, to sort of rev it back up for one last sort of um, hurrah, it's just, um, uh, you can only do it when it's organic, but if you can sort of do that, that there's, um, that there's, something to it as opposed to just sort of petering out the old ending we had just kind of petered out. So, um, and then your so, choices within the, the montage. Yeah. I mean, was well, so the whole montage itself was just kind of this, it, it was, it, it was basically, it, it was just, there was a problem that needed to be solved. So it was just kind of classic in the editing room problem solving where it's like, okay, we don't want to, something's not working. We'd like to not have to reshoot, you know, um, uh, we'd like to, you know, uh, figure out is there some trick something we can do purely editorially to to solve this um and uh and so we just wound up experimenting i I experimented with a lot of things all i had was sort of a bed of music of different tracks that justin that had been sort of initially appropriated for different parts of the movie so i had some kind of you know music that i knew was sort of um uh uh at our disposal and and uh just kind of laid that down um um and Right, because Justin had initially composed a sort of way for singing in the rain to sort of slowly fade out as the kind of um, the sort of more sort of party music kind of thing we associate with the beginning of the movie would sort of rev up initially. Initially, that was all designed just for the closing credits. Singing in the rain was going to play over the closing credits and then sort of morph into that. Um, then we'll call you Stanley. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. That, that was, that was the, it was going to morph pretty quickly into the dance music, so hopefully I would evade that. Um, uh, <laughs> that thing but that was on my mind um uh and and um anyway so i had this kind of uh, piece that was going to be for something else and I sort of used that you know got rid of where the closing credits were and just sort of uh you know experimented with everything from uh different images from the movie uh clips you know which wound up being the sort of clip montage um stuff we had shot of silent film get it that you see a little bit of early in the movie but just not as much as i'd wanted to use initially of silent film how they would die the silent films and kind of just the sort of uh very beautiful process of just sort of pouring uh, different you know colors chemical dyes into the vat and sort of what those would do um i remember when we were shooting that you know just as an insert back in kind of the middle of the shoot yeah it's one of those moments where you think you're just doing a quick throwaway shot trying to get it done as quickly as possible and it was just sort of I, I kind of was struck by the beauty of it and kind of knowing i probably couldn't really use it the way i wanted to but sort of wishing mm-hmm. um anyway so there's some back pocket stuff like that both musically and visually that you'd sort of felt okay well now or never let's just try to pull them out and see if there's something to it and and so it was very sort of instinctive kind of um gut feeling sort of cutting um 
that was very, you know, uh, try not to think through it too much. And then you sort of see, then it's like, take a step back, come back, see what you have. A lot of it didn't work, but what did work, um, I thought worked really well and sort of told me how the rest of it could work. Um, so, um, yeah, in terms of which clips to choose, it was, it was again, a lot of that was just, there, there, there honestly wasn't too much thinking behind it in the sense that it was, that, that there was an intellectual framework for kind of the types of clips and, and they're roughly chronological with a few exceptions and, uh, Coming into the modern era of CG and everything was, I think, surprising to a lot of people. Yeah, well, that that was very surprising when I started when, when you know to the studio and everything when I started. <laughs> yeah. They're like, uh, you know, like, so let me get this straight. There's going to be an ad for Avatar in your movie. <laughs> but but um, I I think the um, I think. Uh, yeah, it was again this sort of thing where any time it felt like it, it, it just needed to, it needed to, um, it needed to. It's almost that thing where you kind of you, you you need to go a little further. You need to sort of set. It felt like the language of the movie was a little bit kind of set a terrain where you sort of. It's sort of how a lot of the set pieces are structured, whether it's the snake fight or things like that, where you kind of set a terrain where you sort of lay out what seems to be a roadmap, um, and. You know, it, it's an A to Z kind of roadmap and people are sort of waiting to see if you're going to go all the way to Z. Mm -hmm. And then the whole kind of trick is you need to try to figure out a way to bring people along as you go all the way to Z and then go past Z. Mm -hmm. And it's the going past Z, which is, again, where for some people it's going into bad taste or it's going into it's going into some some nether world that you don't want to go into. But but um, that was that was the conceit a little bit that you had to try to kind of always take things just that little bit further than, than, um, than expectations or convention or, 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 or whatever would, you know? And, uh, so it, it was, it was a little bit of that, you know, that it wouldn't be enough for me to just kind of, it didn't feel like enough to just do sort of a, to stay within 1952 and kind of have him reflect back on the, the past of the, of the moving image it sort of felt like you needed to, you needed to sort of, jump ahead a little bit and uh but you know uh, sort of i wasn't sure about it as i was doing it it just kind of felt felt like the thing to do but it's it's um i think again the long story to make a long story short the story of that sequence was sort of trying to get something down um i almost said on paper but you know sort of on the on the editing bay um quickly without too much second guessing and then let it sort of simmer and marinate you know and, and then we tinkered for for for, for quite a bit, but, but to try to sort of, um, almost like to try to spill it all out before your good sense tells you it's a terrible idea not to, you know? uh, cause you know, that good sense is going to kick in. There's always that other voice that kicks in going, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, and so you, you want to try to work past that. Um, and then, and then you can engage those voices once there's something to show for it, once there's something, um, uh, concrete on the screen. Uh, so when you lock it and you are going to show it to people, how scary is that for you? Do you, are you done? It's terrifying. Yeah. Well, or are you waiting for the response? Um, well, there's always people who are seeing it before you're locked in the sense that right. there's, you know, uh, uh, I mean, even just the people you're working with, your, your team of editors, composers, sound mixers, producers, um, you know, uh, so you're, you're, you're always kind of in that state of, um, of, um, 
sort of close the door for a bit, burrow in, do some work. And then, of course, you need to start letting other people in the process just to keep the, the train going. And then you can kind of start to get a sense from that of how whether the train is going the way you want it or not. Um, but so when you're going to show these good people. Well, your it, movie, how is, is it? Is it terrifying? No, yeah, that's always a band-aid pulling thing. That's the, to me the scariest thing of the whole. The whole. Uh, it's always the moment in the process where I, I tell myself, "This is it. I'm never doing it again. Never making another movie. I, there's life's too short. I have to find another way uh, to make a living." So it's it's um, um, it's the most vulnerable, primal, you know, want to crawl to a fetal position kind of moment. And and I thought, I think when I was younger, starting out, I thought it was just the sort of, uh, uh, be, you know, uh, beginner's nerves and, and I would uh, I would get better at it. But, um, but I haven't, you know, it, it gives me some solace and sort of as I get to know other filmmakers more, knowing that they tend to feel the same way and, and you know, how young or old they are, you know, so I think there's some level of that that I've kind of actually grown to accept that the moment where I actually start to feel fine with showing something and not nervous at all is actually the moment that I probably stopped caring. And mm. that's probably a bad moment, you know? So, uh, to try to accept the fear and just, it's part of the process and, uh, just, you know, but you, you, you got to do it. It's always a little bit of a bandaid pulling thing. I mean, I think it's always, it's always a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, the scene where Jack, you know, goes into the, theater and watches them laugh at him. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of primal nightmare that I think that any actor or filmmaker, um, uh, has. so, you know, you, you, uh, yeah, you try to work past that. Well, one of the few things I hadn't seen and I thought maybe you made up, I was, I woke up on someday during the holiday on TCM, they played all three that's entertainment movies. And in the first that's entertainment in the first uh, 10 minutes, the, the there's the sequence of them, singing in the pink raincoats yeah <laughs> singing singing in the rain i was like oh he did that it's, too. it's very ghoulish <laughs> raincoats and the yeah the the, 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 the they, they have this weird kind of makeup on i mean anyway yeah no i mean we, we sort of that was very one-to-one -one, yeah uh, when, when we did that um um you know it's again the sort of like funny um uh, th th that way that hollywood had <clears throat> sorry that hollywood has of sort of um rewriting its own history right you know that that um um i used to think singing in the rain that song was written for the movie oh yeah for uh, a 1952 movie um um when in fact not only was it not but the, the sort of genesis of singing in the rain I and mean, this is a kind of lovely backstory uh that i love that you know singing the rain came about because arthur freed had this batch of songs that he had written with the tin pan alley folks back in these you know 20s 30s days that um he was free to use and he just needed a vehicle to use them you know so it's like oh, i got a bunch of songs like sing the rain and you know all i do is dream of you etc cetera, etc cetera, that are all you know kind of 20s hits i'll do a movie set in the 20s you know what happened in the 20s oh you know what actually uh, i'll make it about the, um, the the transition that we all went through of silent to sam um that's how you get singing in the rain so uh, but but as a microcosm of sort of Hollywood learning how to tell its own mythology better, you know, that you go from what I think is maybe one of the worst musical numbers ever put on film, which is the, 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 the Noah's Ark, uh, you know, people in pink slickers. And then with the, with the same song, you get what is maybe the greatest musical number ever put on film. Um, that's amazing. That's, you know, there's, there's, there's something in that about, you know, uh, about kind of, uh, yeah sort of uh, the art form and, and, 
and its evolution and how, yes, we may be losing stuff every time we sort of go forward into another decade and the decade after that. But I'd like to believe we're gaining something as well and that there's there's, you know, it's, it's always a little bit of a, of, a, of a give and take. I always think we should respect the form after 100 years as, as theater is respected, as novels are respected, that where repetition is not an insult. It's not a, it's not a, everything is not, you know, oh, they're going to make a remake. Ooh, ew, ew. <laughs> but that it's actually there's there's work there that is worth repeating or reconsidering 20 years later, or 50 years later. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you think movies still have, I mean, maybe, maybe they still do have a little bit of the chip on the shoulder, uh, you know, of the, uh, are we a lesser art form kind yeah. of thing? I, I don't know. There's, there's maybe still a little bit of that less than there was in the twenties, but maybe there's some, but the other thing too, is that in some ways, another thing that I kind of wanted to express with the movie a little bit is like that there's some aspect of the vulgarity of how movies were considered initially that you don't really want to let go of that, 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 you know, uh, as much as we want to sort of elevate things and sort of enshrine them as sort of works of art, um, you know, part of what made movies different, uh, initially, the promise of them was that they, they would be this kind of, uh, unruly body sort of, um, you know, they, they'd be the, the people's art, you know, and that it would be actually an antidote in opposition to, um, the high arts of Broadway and opera and ballet and whatnot. I think you can have both, you know, that, that cinema is expansive enough as an art form that ideally can encompass both. But, um, you know, I don't think we need to be uh, ashamed of, you know, taking pleasure in things that are considered very lowbrow in our, in our movies, which I guess is something we sort of did a little bit of in this movie. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the recognizing that the roots of cinema even the roots of whatever you think of as sort of the high high point of kind of uh, uh, you know of uh, uh, cinema artistry um, are are very much still in in the muck you know in the in the uh, in in those Nickelodeons and those initial kind of shows where you you know uh, pay a penny or a nickel and and, um, and and rowdy audiences would sort of sit through and just kind of have an experience that there's something about the sort of the B movie idea that, that, that I think is always at the root of it. Can have Avatar without Tar. <laughs> Nicely done. There you go. I just thought of that as we were talking. Thank you so much, Damien, and thank you for the movie. Thank you, very much. Thank you all for sticking thank around. You very much. Thank you. <laughs>